Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. Psalm 90, verse 1. Uh, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you, you brought forth the whole world. For ev- from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn people back to dust, saying, return to dust, you mortals. A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. Yet you sweep people away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning. In the morning it springs up new, but by evening it is dry and withered. You are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a mourn. Our days may come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures. Yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow, for they, are, they quickly pass and we fly away. If only we knew the power of your anger, your wrath is as great as the fear that is your due. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Relent, Lord, how lo- relent, Lord, how long it will it be? Uh, how have, comparis- have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love, that we may sin- sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted aff- us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. May your deeds be shown to our servants and your splendor to our dear children. May the favor of the Lord of our Lord rest on us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Thanks, Johnny. Okay, great. Okay, four books if this talk impacts you. Very little one, Will You Be My Facebook Friend? Social Media and the Gospel by Tim Chester. Highly recommend it. The Busy Christian's Guide to Busyness, again, by my, our friend Tim Chester. Uh, this one I read last week, Crazy Busy, a mercifully short book about a really big problem, Kevin DeYoung. And for those of you that f- sometimes find you might be burning out, and maybe because of Christian ministry, Zeal Without Burnout, Seven Keys to Lifelong Ministry of Sustainable Sacrifice by Christopher Ash. So set four books for you, and I'll be referencing a few of them. Okay, start with a question. Uh, do you tend to be busy or bored? Are you someone uh, whose life feels like you don't have enough time on your hands? You're a busy person. Or you have too much time on your hands? You're a bored person. Which one are you? For some of us, life feels like a relentless series of events and interactions that never stops, and you're always looking for the weekend or the next holiday because you just feel so busy. You don't have enough time. You haven't, got enough to, you, you haven't got enough time to do what you want to do. Or maybe you like to be super busy. So you don't necessarily long for the holiday or the weekend. You actually find refuge in busyness. Are you someone whose life is marked by busyness? Or are you someone who has too much time on their hands, not enough to do, and therefore you find yourself getting bored? You're idle. You want something meaningful and satisfying to do. And, and maybe to avoid the boredom, you take refuge in sinful habits time-wasting patterns, um, or maybe whilst you tend towards idleness, you know, contrary to Mr. Busy, who always wants to keep himself busy as a form of refuge, 
you find refuge in your idleness. If I'm not idle, I'd have to take responsibility. I'd have to get involved in, in messy people's lives and things like that. And I don't want to do that. Which are you? Are you busy or bored? Uh, do you not have enough time to do what you want or do you have too much? I ask those questions because we're going to think about what it means to steward our time. Every single one of us has the same amount of hours in a day, days in a week, weeks in a year. Now, the Lord will give us different numbers of days in our lives, 50, 70, 90. Tragically, some don't even get 50. So whilst we don't know the number of days of our lives, that varies for each of us, we are all bound by the same rule of time. As the famous expressions go, time waits for no man, or time marches on. Time is the same for all of us. No one can escape the boundary of time. And yet what we do with the time that God has given us, how we respond to that boundary that we face, how we steward our days on earth, how we steward every hour, day, week, year, will vary hugely. And to help us think through how should we steward our lives and our time, we're going to look at one of the oldest prayers in the Bible by Moses, Psalm 90. Do uh, take your sheets and keep that with you. We're going to be referring to it as we go. Psalm 90 is going to tell us two things about God, ourselves, and time, and three prayers to pray so you steward your time well. Two things about God, ourselves, and time, and then three prayers to pray. First truth on the screen, God is eternal and humans are mortal. Verse 2, before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the, the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Now, this summer, uh, Jacob, uh, all of us went to County Clare for our summer holiday. And County Clare is beautiful and filled with old things. And uh, we went to various things. And Jacob particularly got quite excited about uh, oldness. And so here I have a rock from the island of Inishir. Well, there was a church built on that a, a thousand years ago. This rock is a thousand years old. That's pretty cool. We also went to the Alawi Caves, and th which were formed 1.5 million years ago. And this is potentially 1.5 million years old. We also went to the magnificent cliffs of Moha that were formed 300 million years ago. This rock is potentially 300 million years years old. We brought them home. And when you stand on the cliffs of Moha and you recognize how old they are and how spectacular they are, there's a reverence. You, you, some people cry. It's, there's transcendence. There's awe. There's wonder. There's fear. A, a holy, wonderful fear. The psalmist says, before all of this, from everlasting to everlasting, is our God. And that hopefully will inspire an awe, a wonder, a reverence, a transcendence that the God of all eternity, the God who was there before 300 year, million years ago when the cliffs were formed. And he goes on to say, well, he says it in verse 1, Lord, you have been, what? Is this God been to God's people? Our dwelling place through all generations. And the word for dwelling place, next slide, is in Deuteronomy 33. It's the same word. The eternal God is your refuge, your dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. The eternal Lord who has no beginning and end is our refuge. How do I steward my time? The first thing you've got to know is that the eternal Lord is your refuge. And he has eternal arms. And he's holding you. 
when you think about the length of your days on earth, don't start with yourself. Start with God, the one who's the refuge and who's going to carry you. And this God is not bound by the same rule of time. Did you see that in verse 4? A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by or like a watch in the night. God doesn't relate to time the same way we do. Why? Because he's eternal. He sees the big picture. He was there 10 trillion years ago. He's going to be here in 10 trillion years. And the book of Hebrews says that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And this eternal God is ours. And we are his through faith in Christ. So that's the big picture. God is eternal. But then it goes very quickly, to the mortality of human beings. From God's eternity to our infinity, uh, to our finitude, to our mortality. Verse 3, do you see it there? You turn people back to dust, saying, return to dust, you mortals. Verses 5 to 6, you sweep people away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning. In the morning it springs up new, but by evening it is dry and withered. God is eternal. God is all-powerful. God is infinite. And humans are very much frail impotent uh, and mortal. Against divine timelessness, our life is like the new grass, flourishing in the morning and then scorched by the sun and gone in the evening. And this is a constant theme of Scripture about our time on earth. It is short. It is brief. There's metaphor after metaphor. Here it is like a flower that comes and goes. We're also like a shadow which passes when the sun comes, or like water spilt on the ground, or like smoke or mist dispersed in the wind. All metaphors from Scripture to to show how transient our life is. We do not live forever. Our lives are are short-lived, especially when set against God's eternity. That's the first truth you've got to get hold of. God is eternal. We are very much mortal. Why has death come into our world? Why don't we live forever? The second truth on the screen, God is holy, humans are sinful. The reason we are not eternal is that we've turned away from God, and God said to Adam and Eve in Genesis 2.17, but you must not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for of the day you eat of it, you will certainly die. And after they disobeyed God, Genesis 3.19, it says, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Moses is using the language of dust. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament reflecting on this says, for the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. The result, the pay, the consequences, the wages of our sin is death. So Moses, great Moses, with the story of Genesis 1-3 to in his mind, full of, no- of the knowledge of his sin and his rebellion and mankind's sin and rebellion, says death has come, across, uh, uh, come upon the human race because we are now living in a cursed world of Genesis 3 where we no longer know eternal blessings, but we've been judged by, the, by a righteous God against our sin. And he goes in verses 7 to 10 to talk about we live our lives under this sense of curse and judgment of God, and that is marked by death ultimately. And he has two conclusions. First one on the screen, he says, life is short. Our days may come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures. And then the second conclusion, our life is hard. Verse 9, all our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan, verse, second part of verse 10. Yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. Now, this isn't easy hearing, especially for modern ears. We don't like to talk like this. Maybe you think, Moses, you're so pessimistic. You're full of bitterness. I don't think so. I think Moses is a realist. 
And remember, Moses starts the psalm by saying, we, not, we don't need to be defined by our mortality. We can be defined by God's eternity because we can take refuge in him. This is not said in pessimistic bitterness, but calm, sobering reality. Every human being is destined to die. Our span of life is short. Um, but we can find refuge in an eternal God. And as the psalm is going to say, we can find mercy. You can come out from under the spell of death, so to speak, the curse that's over us, and find everlasting life. And the psalmist is going to call on God for compassion. In other words, the redemption and love of God can come into your life, as the psalmist is going to show us, and we'll look at those prayers. Now, for those of you that think I'm being too pessimistic, let me read some famous words from someone you'll all know who's not a Christian. Some of you may know these words. He said this, Remember that I'll be dead soon. Remembering that I'll be dead soon is the most important tool I've ever encountered to help me make a, the big choices in life. Because almost everything, all external expectation, all pride, all fear of embarrassment or failure, these things just fall away in the face of death, leaving only what is truly important. Remembering that you're going to die is the best way I know to avoid the trap of thinking you have something to lose. You're already naked. No one wants to die. Even people who want to go to heaven don't want to die to get there. And yet death is a destination we all share. No one has ever escaped it. Who said that? Steve Jobs, Sierra of Apple. Died at 56. Brilliant man. He didn't get 70 or 80. He got 56. He knew what Moses was talking about. Jobs was a realist. Moses is a realist. Are you? Are you ready to face the fact that your life is short and often will be hard because we live in a Genesis 3 world where we are now cursed. You'll never use your time on earth effectively. You'll never gain a heart of wisdom. Look at verse 12. Teach us to number our days aright that we may gain a heart of wisdom. You'll never gain that heart of wisdom if you don't know that your days are short and often hard. Only God is holy. Only God is eternal. Only God is omnipotent. Humans are mortal, sinful, and frail. Now, not only is this the coldest Sunday you've ever turned out, you might be thinking this is the worst talk you've ever heard, and before you run out for warmth, um, let me show you how Moses ends the psalm in amazing optimism. This isn't a depressing message, this is a realistic message, so you can use your time effectively. And he appeals to God's compassion, and we're going to learn, so two truths about God, he is, he is eternal, we are mortal, he is holy, we are sinful. How can we pray to use our time? First one, First prayer, verse 12, underline this in your Bibles, remember it, pray this. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Wisdom is to recognize you are limited, frail, brief. Don't get ahead of yourself. That is wisdom. We become wise as we recognize God is eternal, we are mortal, God is holy, we are sinful. We won't live forever, we are finite, we're not all-powerful, we're not really in control, we can't solve every problem. If you can't say that, you're not wise. You're not living in reality. And you'll only learn to do this if you appreciate, and one of the ways you'll become wise, this wisdom will work out in your life, if you appreciate your frailty and your limitations, is that you will understand that woven into the fabric of time in God's wisdom is a pattern of work and rest. On the slide, please. Sabbath. Now, I believe 
from Jesus' teaching on the Sabbath in Hebrews 4, that Jesus completes and fulfills the Old Testament laws about Sabbath, so I no longer need to legalistically put aside one day a week. But woe to me if I don't appreciate the wisdom and the principles that were behind the Sabbath laws. And if you will not learn to rest, to stop, to slow down, to be refreshed mentally, physically, emotionally, and spiritually, you will break down because you are not eternal. You need sleep. God doesn't. He doesn't need rest. You do. You will break down, or at best, you will work the whole of your life at 50, 60% capacity, always feeling like life is exhausting. What What are the broader principles of rest? How do we learn to rest? What are the wisdom we can glean from the Scriptures? Four things. Firstly, in the Scriptures, rest is always weekly. In other words, it is a sustainable pattern in our general rhythm of life. We're not working as hard as we can and taking a holiday. We're not just pushing through all costs to get to the end of the term. We have worked out a sustainable weekly rhythm of rest. Of course, there's peaks in, in, in your life and you'll have moments where things literally are out of control and you can't take that rest. But as a general pattern, rest should be weekly. Or put it another way around, you should work from a position of rest, not work until you need rest. What do they do in Genesis 2? God makes them, day 6, day 7, have a day of rest. You work from a position of rest. You don't work until you need to rest. So firstly about Sabbath, it's got to be, your life has to be sustained. There has to be a weekly rhythm to your life. Do you have that? Don't be a fool. You're not eternal. You've got to have that. Two, rest is active, not passive. I think often we think of rest of being lazy and doing nothing. The Bible condemns laziness repeatedly. Rest is not laziness. It is not passive. It is active. When Israel rested, they held festivals. They ate together. They read the ancient scriptures. They went to the temple. They weren't being lazy. They were being active in their rest. So whilst rest might include a longer sleep, I get a longer sleep on Saturday morning. Leanne gets a longer sleep on Sunday morning. Some of you need more sleep. But rest isn't just about sleep and doing nothing. It's about planning day trips, having people over, spending time in the company of others, enjoying good food. It's about having a hobby. It's about corporate worship. Rest is active, not passive. All of this means that rest requires planning. Many people I speak to today are very unsatisfied with their rest because they haven't planned their rest. So when the day of rest comes, they find themselves listless and tired and frustrated and far from rested. Rest is active, not passive in the Bible. Thirdly, rest is usually corporate, not isolated. I appreciate that those of you who are introverts get refreshed from time alone. Extroverts get recharged from being around people. Introverts get recharged from quiet and solitude. I'm becoming more and more of an introvert the older I get. So there's nothing wrong with time alone. In fact, we need to learn to be alone with God, content without distractions and noise. It's important to learn to have time alone. But there's a modern idea of I need me time. From what I can understand, that is selfishness, not time alone. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer argues in his book, uh, uh, Christian Community, you have time alone to hear from God in prayer so you can come back and serve the community, not so you can just be selfish away from the community. So on the whole, Israel got together to rest. 
So time alone is good, but time alone is good for the sake of engaging with the community. Fourthly, rest includes worship. This is vital. When Israel rested, they worshipped. They went to the temple. They read the ancient scrolls. They had teaching from the priests. They made sacrifices. They sang. They said their prayers. Rest was about worshipping God and their relationship with God. And this is where we get to the heart of the Sabbath. Sabbath was ultimately about resting in God. That our meaning, our satisfaction, our joy, our hope, our security, our comfort is in God. It, we don't earn it. We can't achieve it. We can't fix it. We can't secure it. Sabbath is a moment when you say, God is my rest. That is why it is fulfilled perfectly in Jesus, who on the cross says, it is finished. All the work is done. You can rest in me. Eternal life is guaranteed. Sins have been paid for. I can be your true joy. Salvation and satisfaction are now yours through faith in Christ. So rest includes worship. And we're going to talk about the next prayer, which is for joy. So first point, understanding God's eternity and our mortality, God's omnipotence and our frailty will teach you the wisdom that you have to work from a position of rest. Do you understand Sabbath at all? Do you? We've got to learn this as a culture. We've got to learn it. We're going to burn out. We're going to be ineffective. Second prayer we can pray. The joy of God each day. Verse 15. I pray this prayer when I wake up depressed. You know, sometimes you just wake up depressed. I pray this prayer. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love. Verse 14, sorry. We may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Satisfy me this morning with your unfailing love. Kevin DeYoung in his book, Crazy Busy, this mercifully short book about a really big problem, writes this. The presence of extreme business in our lives may point to deeper problems, a, a pervasive people-pleasing, a restless ambition, a malaise of meaninglessness. He quotes Tim Crider. He wrote this, the, the Busy Trap from the New York Times. It was, a, it was an article that went viral. I suggest you go and find it online. Crider writes, busyness serves as a kind of existential reassurance, a hedge against emptiness. Obviously, your life cannot possibly be silly or trivial or meaningless if you're so busy, completely booked, in demand every hour of the day. Elsewhere in his book by DeYoung, he, a chapter called you're, you're Letting Your Screen Strangle Your Soul. What a great title for a chapter. He quotes Peter Kreft, who writes, we want to complexify our lives. We don't, want, we don't have to. We want to. We want to be harried and hassled and busy. Unconsciously, we want the very things we complain about. But if we had leisure, we would look at ourselves and listen to our hearts and see the great gaping hole in our hearts and be terrified because that hole is so big that nothing but God can fill it. Do you see what he's saying? There's something wrong within us. We lack joy. That means we crowd out our lives, all that emptiness in our hearts with busyness and complexity. We don't deal with our hearts. We don't deal with the gaping hole. And so we'll never steward our time well until we have something, a joy, that comes in and fills the hole. I don't need to be connected. I can say no. I've got an internal freedom. I've been satisfied this morning by the unfailing love of God. My hole has been filled inside. I can have the right kingdom priorities. I'm a slave to no one. Nowhere is this more clearly seen than in social media. 
In his book, Hamlet's Blackberry, William Powers uh, likens our digital age to a gigantic room, hopefully a warm room. <laughs> in the room, there are a billion people. But despite its, despite its size, everyone is in close proximity to everyone else. At any moment, someone may come up and tap you on the shoulder. A text, a hit, a comment, a tweet, a post, a message, a new thread. Some people come up to talk business, others to complain, others to tell their secrets, others to flirt, others to sell you things, others to give you information just to tell you what you're thinking or doing. Google. <clears throat> this goes on day and night. Powers calls it the non-stop festival of human interaction. We enjoy the room immensely for a while. But eventually we grow tired of the constant noise. We struggle to find a personal zone. Someone taps us while we're eating, while we're sleeping, while we're on a date. We get trapped in the bathroom for crying out loud. So we decide to take a holiday, just a short one. But no one else seems to know where the exit is. No one else seems interested in leaving. In fact, they all seem put off by the fact that you might not want to stay. And even when you find the exit and see the enchanting world through the open, you aren't sure what life is like on the other side. It's a leap of faith to see what happens. Kevin DeYoung, commenting on this amazing parable, says this, The power of power's parable should be self-evident. Like Tolkien's ring, we love the room and we hate the room. We want to breathe the undistracted air of digital independence, but increasingly, the room is all we know. How can we walk out when everyone else is staying in? How can we pass our time and occupy our thoughts without the unceasing tap, tap, tap? For many of us, the web is like the Eagles Hotel California. We can check out any time we like, but we can never leave. We need to learn new rhythms of work and rest, of being connected and being disconnected. And ultimately, this will, we'll be able to do it if we have been satisfied in the morning by an unfailing love that means I don't need social media. I don't need the likes. I don't need to post. I don't need to, be, I don't need to know what everyone else is doing. I'm satisfied. A few guidelines for you if you struggle. And you do struggle, unless you're one of the few people in the world that doesn't. This is what I do. I turn off every single notification apart from text messages. I get no notification except text messages, and I tell my friends that's what I'm doing. So if they want me, they have to call me or text me. I'm not constantly being interrupted by my phone. On your day off, and this is what I do, I don't really carry my phone around. I leave it, I check it now and again. My day off Saturday. Have a day in the week without social media if you're really addicted to it. Don't, Leanne and I have a rule, which we pretty much keep. Don't have your phone in the bedroom, at dinner tables, or night outs, and we catch each other and we say we need to put our phones away. Buy an alarm clock instead of using your phone as an alarm clock. Buy an old phone just to be contactable and then leave your digital smartphone somewhere where you check it once or twice a day to see what's going on. But verse 15, you'll never do anything I'm telling you unless you haven't been satisfied by God's unfailing love. Once you've been satisfied, you won't run after the wrong things. You won't need the click, the tap, the, not the notification. You won't need it. You won't spend your time in the wrong pursuits. Only when you've been satisfied by the everlasting God's unfailing love. What does he say in verse 14? That we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Social media will never make you sing for joy and be glad all your days nor the relentless rat race of career and pleasure-seeking. You will never sing for joy and be glad all your days. And you know it. Sat, sat God, if I'm going to use my time wisely, I need to be satisfied. I need to have an internal freedom. 
It means I can say no to all these things that are distraction and noise. So we've looked at the wisdom of God in our lives, which gives us a right view of ourselves. We can develop a healthy rhythm of work and rest. We've looked at the joy of God each day, which gives us an internal freedom to enable me to use time well. The final prayer of Moses, verse 17, prays for the favor of God in our work. Amazing. The psalm ends so optimistic, doesn't it? May the favor of the Lord our God rest upon us. Establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Isn't it interesting that a psalm that focuses so much on the, transcend, uh, the transcendence of God and the transience of human life ends by focusing on God, what God might establish on earth through us that might last for more than just a life. Moses has been realistic about the transience of life, and yet he becomes optimistic. What can happen when you know the favor of God? I love the way Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15, next slide. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was in me. When Paul encountered the answer to Moses in prayer in verse 17, the favor of God, the grace of God, what happened? He worked, and he worked really hard. Have you ever read the Apostle Paul's life? He worked really hard. And he had a joy. He had an internal freedom. He had a right view of his own life. So do you see grace enables you to sleep, take time off, disconnect from social media, say no. And grace enables you to work incredibly hard. That's a balanced life. The Bible wants to teach every single one of us. Paul says at the end of his life, 2 Timothy 4, 7, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. This is what you can say at the end of your life if you haven't been distracted by stupid noise wasting your days. You knew the grace of God. Paul wrote to the Ephesian church, urging them to use their time wisely. What did he say? This is an amazing verse. Be very careful then how you live. I do a talk like this and think it through. Not as unwise, but as wise. You could be foolish with your time making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. When Paul says because the days are evil, the word he uses for days is not the Greek word chronos, which means duration of time. This is all from Tim Chester's book. But kairos, which means a specific time of opportunity or crisis. So if you read chapter 5, which we're going to do in the next series of, in Ephesians, Paul has been talking about the darkness in the world and how we must live as children of light in the darkness. And he's urging Christians to redeem time. Make the most of it. Redeem this time we have by living and being and bringing light into a dark world that is lost in the noise. In other words, it's about what we do, not how much we do. We must seize the opportunity to live as children of light while we still can. One day, the days are going to be over. Jesus will return. And have you learned to live a wise life before that happens? And so Moses prays, we need that your favor, that we can live in such a way that you might establish the work we're doing because the work we do for you would be effective. And that clearly means spreading the gospel because our days are limited and people need to hear the message to repent and believe. But Paul actually applies it in a different way. Next verse, in the next chapter, he's talking to those that are working for earthly masters. He says, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people. So we work from a position of rest, and then we work for God in every moment of our lives, for his glory, for his kingdom, and we work hard. 
Kevin DeYoung was in his chapter on social media, it's not just on social media, applies it, talks about two twin problems. The first one is addiction. I've talked about it. We can't say no. We can't not be connected. We can't switch off. But then he talks about a second thing called acedia. The heck is acedia, you're saying to me? Acedia is an old word roughly equivalent to sloth or listlessness. It is not a synonym for leisure or even laziness. Acedia suggests indifference and spiritual forgetfulness. It is like the dark night of the soul, but more blah, more vanilla, less interesting. As Richard John Newhouse explains, next slide, acedia is evenings without number, obliterated by television, evenings neither of entertainment nor of education, but of narcoticized defenses against time and duty. Above all, acedia is apathy, the refusal to engage in the pathos, you know, in, in, in the lives and the emotions of the lives of God and of God's life with them. Some of us struggle with overwork. We're too busy. We haven't learned the wisdom of Psalm 90. Others struggle with laziness, wasting time. We don't want to take responsibility. We don't want to engage in the messiness of others' lives. We're just listless. What's the answer to both of you? Grace. The rest and joy that are found in God through Christ that frees us from our addictions and motivates us out of our acedia. I want to finish. And I want you to see the genius, the wisdom of Moses, what he's doing here. Think of the three points. If we know the wisdom of God to recognize our limitations and therefore rest really well, if we know the joy of God which deals with an internal restlessness and addiction and frees us from them, we will be out of work and use our time so, so well. But you need the first two foundations in place. God is eternal, you're mortal. God is holy, you're sinful. God's infinite, you're very finite. God is all-powerful, you're transient, brief, and frail. Get that in your head. If you won't, you're not living in reality. Once you've got that in your head, Lord, I need wisdom to work and rest and rest so I can work from a position of rest. Lord, I need joy so I can be free from these stupid things that mean I waste my time. Lord, give me your favor. May I know your grace so I could work so effectively because the days are evil and I want to be light in this world. I don't want to waste my life. Oswald Sanders puts it like this. Work even hard work when, my, when the mind is at rest is, is health-giving. It produces fatigue but not tension. The fundamental cause of strain is found to be in the mind, not the body. Tim Chester, reflecting on this, says about himself, There was a period in my life when I combined a full-time PhD, weekly preaching, raising two preschool children. I would get physically tired, yet I had no complaints. I loved it all and found it energizing. At other times, I've hardly done one useful thing all day. I've been listless, restless, and weary. Those words ring so true for my life. Do you see... Psalm 90, an honest view of your life, the eternity of God that you can find refuge in with your frailty, the wisdom for sustainable rhythms of work and rest, a joy that means you don't waste your life with stupid things because you're free to say no and disconnect. Once you have all those building blocks in place, you'll have the right priorities, the right perspective, the right motivation to work hard, use your time effectively, and be the biggest light you can in this world by spreading the gospel and working in a very counter-cultural way in your workplace. May God help us. What is the church? It is a counter-cultural community on earth, an outpost of heaven to God to say, this is, this is what the kingdom of God is like. That's a great question. How long do we have left? And so, <laughs> the, 
it, it's a countercultural community on earth where we would demonstrate to the world this is what life looks like under King Jesus and it's blessing, it's flourishing, I'm resting. I can work really hard, but I have nothing to prove because I have an internal joy. joy. So would you stand with me? We're going to finish by taking bread and wine. You can jump to the front or jump to the front or do a lap of the hall before you come to take communion. John 17, 4 says, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. Jesus says he finished the work so we can rest. For some of you, as you come to take communion, this is again about realizing that you need God's mercy and to recognize your sin and, and, and avail of that mercy that's available and take refuge in him. Others of you need to repent of, of addictions to social media, to being busy, the inability to say no. Others of you need to come to Jesus and say, give me this rest so that I can rest properly internally. Others of you need to say, Lord, wake me up out of my acedia that I might serve you effectively. So we come to the table remembering that Jesus has done it all. He finished the work the Father gave him to do. In him we can find rest. The bread signifies his body that was broken for us. The blood signifies his blood that was poured out for us. There's grace available. Grace to say no and grace to say yes. Grace to step back and grace to sleep and grace to say yes and engage. And come to the table and ask God for what you need. So well, let me pray. We're going to sing and you can just make your way forward. This side has gluten-free, uh, but anyone can come this side and non-alcoholic option. So take both sides, but if you need gluten-free or non-alcoholic, come this way. Let's take a moment. We live in a noisy world. Let's take a moment to be quiet. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. May the favor of the Lord our God rest upon us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Lord, we thank you for ancient wisdom, the scriptures. And I pray, Lord, for each of us as we think about responding. We recognize again our need for you, our sin, that we live in a world that is cursed because we've rebelled. And as we come to the Lord's table, we remember Jesus came and was cursed for us. And he was hung on a tree. And he experienced the restlessness of the soul. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So we could experience a rest of the soul. We thank you that in Jesus we see a man who knew the limitations of being a man. He needed sleep. He needed food. He, he, he had to take time off. But he could still say, I finished the work the Father gave me. We thank you for the Apostle Paul who could finish his life and say, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. And I pray, Lord, you teach us as a church to make the most of the opportunity we have before us today, to live today for you, being light and bringing light into our world. So as we respond, Lord, through song and through the, the bread and the wine, 
Touch us afresh and equip us as we go from here to be your people in this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.